heard a wonderful story uh, about a little boy. The little boy was there at his sister's birthday, and the sister was being given all these wonderful gifts, and she was given a tea set over uh, the pots and the cups and the whole thing, and the, the sister wasn't interested in the tea set at all. She just looked at it and put it aside. But this little boy was fascinated by the tea set. He thought it was wonderful. And he said to his dad, Dad, let's set up a cafe and have coffees like you do it when you're at work. And the dad said, oh, that sounds fun. So the little boy went up to his room and he set out the table and he made a, co- made a cafe and he dressed it all up nice. And, you know, I don't know how cafes work, but he made it the ambiance or whatever it was. And the dad came in and sat down on the little chair and they sat and they had coffee together. The boy had filled up the teapot with water and they poured out the thing. And the dad drank all the water in the teapot and said, oh, is there any more? And the little boy says, yeah, great. And he runs out, fills up the teapot and comes back. They keep going. They have a lovely morning together drinking coffee together and chatting like they're in the cafe. And eventually they get filled the teapot up again and again and again. And eventually the dad says, oh, we've run out. And the little boy says, I'm sorry, I can't fill it up anymore. And the dad said, why not? He said, because the toilet's empty. The only place the little boy could find to get the water out was from the bottom of the toilet. I tell that story because... If you drink enough water, eventually the toilet will be empty. No. How do you eat an elephant? One bite at a time. How do you empty the toilet bowl? One cup of coffee at a time. If you divide a big job into small enough parts, you can get it done over time. And so we've been working our way through 1 Corinthians, a letter from a founding pastor to a church that he loves, correcting some errors, answering some questions, refocusing their efforts on what is most important. And for Paul, the most important thing of all is Jesus. Wow. I don't know what happened there. Can someone try that again? Technical issues this morning. For Paul, the most important thing is Jesus and what he has done for us on the cross. It did it again. Is, is the button stuck? Am I doing it? One, one cup at a time. And in that gap, Doug has fixed the time. So it's no longer quarter past six. It's now quarter past ten. Well done, Doug. Yes, First Corinthians chapter 7. For Paul, the most important thing is, no, back, back. There we go. Here it is, our verse. We should know it by now anyway. Let's read it together. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Again and again in this pastoral letter, Paul returns to the theme of what Jesus has done and how Christians ought to live in response to the good news of the gospel. And here in chapter 7, he's responding to questions from the congregation about sex, about marriage, about being single, about divorce. And his advice overall is that people should stay as they are or stay as they were when Jesus called them. But single single people should stay single. Married people should stay single. Married people should stay married. I'm in a rush this morning. I need to calm down. Single people should stay single. Married people should stay married. And even going on to say that slaves ought not to worry about being slaves, 
And the circumcised should not worry about trying to change that. That what matters most of all is being in Christ Jesus, being a part of his family, and that this is the only status that matters. This is his first argument for staying as you are. In the previous section that we talked about a few weeks ago, Paul has advice for young people who are on the verge of getting married. He says it's not a sin to marry, but it is not a great time to tie the knot, that the world will end soon. The world will end soon enough and Jesus will return and there'll be no more marriage anyway. And this is his second reason for staying as you are. And in today's passage, Paul will argue that single people are more useful for the kingdom of God and have less worries than those who get involved with the opposite sex. Yet another good reason to stay as you are. This repeated theme of staying in you are Staying as you are is so contrary to our culture, so contrary to our world. There is so much pressure on people to find a spouse and settle down and start producing children. So much pressure to fit in, to find Mr. Right, to find Miss Right. That what Paul says here is so very strange to our minds. Many people find themselves pressured into relationships that are not right, that are not good that are not necessary. You know, getting married ought not be the default option. There's a board game called The Game of Life. Has anyone ever played The Game of Life? Part of the problem with loving board games is that your children make you play terrible board games. The Game of Life is a terrible board game. In this game, you get to choose whether you go to university or just start your job. You get to choose which job you take. You get to choose which house you'll buy. But guess what? Everyone gets married. In this game, you have no choice. You have to get married in order to get to the next part of the game. There's no way out of it. And that's the world speaking. The world says, Everyone's got to be paired up. But that's not God's will. And it should not be what the church says either. And so if you're a single person and you felt pressure in the church to get married, I'm very sorry. And that should not happen. There should be no pressure. In fact, there should be pressure to stay single. Because Paul says, I want you to be free from concern. So we're reading from 1 Corinthians chapter 7 and starting at verse 32. The children read some of this for us this morning. I want you to be free from concern. Wouldn't that be nice? To be free from concern, to have a stress-free lifestyle. Other translations put it as, I want you to be free from worries. And he goes on and says, an unmarried man is concerned about the Lord's affairs, how he can please the Lord. But a married man is concerned about the affairs of this world, how he can please his wife. And there's a joke there that I won't tell. And his interests are divided. An unmarried woman or virgin is concerned about the Lord's affairs. Her aim is to be devoted to the Lord in both body and spirit. But a married woman is concerned about the affairs of this world, how she can please her husband. And there's another joke there, but I also won't tell. He says, I am saying this for your own good, 
not to restrict you, but that you may live in a right way in undivided devotion to the Lord. Undivided devotion. Now, Paul doesn't clearly, clearly, he doesn't think it's impossible to serve the Lord and your marriage partner. He knows many Christians. He knows many married Christians, including most of the other apostles. In 1 Corinthians chapter 9, which we'll get to next year at this point, he talks about how the other apostles have all got wives to look after them, and he doesn't. Paul doesn't imagine for a moment the two callings are mutually exclusive. But when Paul is writing this letter, there's trouble about. Times are hard. There's persecution. People are being rounded up and thrown to the lions and worse. And the return of the Lord was expected at almost any moment. Paul does not look down on the aim of pleasing the husband or wife. That's right and that's proper. Indeed, earlier in the chapter, he talks about the importance of pleasing your husband, pleasing your wife. And in Ephesians chapter 5, Paul writes about the self-giving love of husband to wife, the answering love of wife to husband, and that these things are pleasing to God, gloriously reflecting his image. But in times of social and economic distress, it may simply be impossible to do both things well, to find out and do what pleases the Lord, working for the good news in whatever one way one is called to do and the pressure of finding out and doing what it is that will build up a marriage relationship. And if you have to choose between the two, Paul says, serve the Lord first. Put God first. This has been a challenge to me in my own ministry. Uh, When Talia and I were, we'd been married a few years, we went to Bible college to become Salvation Army officers and Talia was pregnant, and we were getting ready for ministry in churches, and I heard a story that inspired me of a young man my age in Brazil doing the same thing, going to a Salvation Army training college to become an officer. But instead of living at the college with his wife or whoever, he chose each night to go and live in a drain pipe with the street kids of his city. And he would go and sleep in the drain pipe to make sure the children were safe from bullying and abuse and drug addicts and gangs and all the trouble. He would go to college during the day and study, and at night he'd go and sleep in a drain pipe. And that really challenged me. It challenges me to this day. Why, God, do you want me to go and live in a drain pipe? Do you want me to go and look after the kids on the street? Do you want me to do these things? And this was a real challenge to me in my devotion life until I came to the point of realizing that God had called that man to do that job. He hadn't called me to do that. He'd called me to sleep in my comfortable bed next to my beautiful wife and to raise our many, many children. And thank God for that. But if I'd been free, if I'd not been entangled, if I hadn't been married, maybe I would have gone and lived in that drain pipe. Maybe I would have found the equivalent here in Australia. But the Lord had called me to different things. So we need to be careful when we make decisions about who we're going to marry, how many children we're going to have, where are we going to live. These sorts of things are challenges to us. We need to compare them to what the Lord is calling us to do. And, of course, we can see in our day and age the damage that's done by insisting that ministers be abstinent 
priests and monks and nuns and all that carry on, which is not biblical at all. Paul talks of elders and deacons and bishops being married. And it's madness to think that it's God's will that people have to be single to serve God. And yet, there's something to be said for those people who are willing to stay single for the sake of the gospel. Willing to stay single so they can sacrifice themselves and their lives and pour it out for God and his glory. I think of David Collins. A single man who's able to go and serve and spend his life in the Solomon Islands. I think of so many other people that I know who are single by choice. They can serve God in difficult situations. And I think of John Wesley, who was mostly single. John Wesley, who started our denomination, a great man of faith, a great visionary, a great preacher, a great thinker, in his later years saw his brother and his friends getting married and thought to himself, maybe I should get married too. And it was the worst decision he ever made because he and his wife were not well suited. She wanted him to stay at home and cook toast over the fire and he wanted to be out preaching and riding his horse around and going to the villages of England and they had a miserable marriage. Sometimes we gloss over the mistakes of our heroes. and That makes them less than human. John Wesley, after whom our denomination is named, he should not have got married. That was a mistake. And so there's a challenge there for everybody. What ought I do? And in this passage, passage Paul is trying to teach the Corinthians and us to think clearly, to think wisely, above all, to think Christianly about these delicate issues. There is no one answer that fits everyone. And so Paul will go on in verse 36. The kids did not read this bit this morning. He says, if anyone is worried that he might not be acting honorably towards the virgin, that is the young woman that he is engaged to, and if his passions are too strong and he feels he ought to marry, He should do as he wants. He is not sinning. They should get married. But the man who has settled the matter in his own mind, who's under no compulsion, has control over his own will, and who has made up his his mind not to marry the virgin, that is the maid, the young woman, this man also does the right thing. So it's a good thing to get married, Paul says, and it's a good thing not to get married. And then he goes on in verse 38. He says, Then he who marries the virgin does right, but he who does not marry her does better. In this second chunk of of this passage, Paul is repeating something that he said different. He's saying something in slightly different words to what he said that we spoke about a few weeks ago. It's good to be single, Paul says, but it's not for everyone. Think carefully about what you're doing and why. Consider your options. Make good choices. Don't be pressured by society or culture into making these choices. Paul puts his thumb on the scale a little bit in that last verse. As a notable bachelor himself, he thinks it's always better not to be married. So there's a good thing and there's a better thing. But if you want to, go for it, he says. There are many who've ignored Paul's wise advice and have rushed ahead into marriage. 
and have rushed ahead into Christian work or service, assuming that God has brought these things together and therefore it's all just going to work out. Only to find out the complex business of learning to work for the gospel, the complex business of learning to live as a couple, doesn't always just automatically happen. It simply can't be assumed. We see the sorry story of marriage tensions and breakups among Christian workers that bear witness to this danger. At the beginning of this passage, Paul said that his aim was to keep Christians free from anxieties. Sometimes Paul tells people to put anxieties away, trusting in the Lord for everything. Like in Philippians 4 verse 6, he says, Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. But part of that trusting God for everything involves taking steps to make sure that one is not putting oneself in an unnecessary place, putting unnecessary burdens of anxiety upon oneself and upon those we love. We need to be reminded that sometimes when we pray for something, part of the answer to the prayer may be some action that lies in our own power to do or not to do. There's no point praying for safety on the road and then going out and driving like a maniac. There's no point me praying for God to heal my eyes and give me perfect vision when my glasses are right within my reach. There are some things we can do to help God along in these processes. Sometimes the prayer that we pray, God says, yes, and you go and do it. The great danger of praying that the Lord would send workers into his harvest field is that the Lord then taps you on the shoulder and says, off you go. I say great danger, it's a great privilege. Paul continues, he concludes his chapter, this section of the chapter, this book, the section about marriage by summing it up and giving fresh advice. He says in verse 39, a woman is bound to her husband as long as he lives, but if her husband dies, she is free to marry anyone she wishes, but he must belong to the Lord. In my judgment, she is happier if she stays as she is, and I think that I too have the Spirit of God. Paul finishes up this discussion of marriage with a short word of advice to widows. And as we discussed a few weeks ago, this is pertinent advice for widowers as well. But the Greek does not seem to have that word, widower. It only has the word widow. And so it's hard to talk about things if the word does not exist in the language. The advice applies to both. And I believe it applies beyond as well. I believe this advice applies to all those who are starting over for whatever reason. Paul has dealt with the single with those in Christian marriages, with those married to unbelievers, and with those young people who are deciding whether to stay single or get married. And here at the end of the passage, he talks about those who have been married but no longer are. And the good news, he says, is that such people are free, free to do as they wish, free to marry anyone she wishes, Paul says although presumably the man would have something to say in the matter as well. She is free to get married if she wants to. But, he says, but he must belong to the Lord. Other translations say, but only 
in the Lord. Paul's advice is if you're going to get married, go for it, but make sure they're a Christian. Make sure they're going the same way you are. And this ought to be good advice for everyone contemplating marriage. It is hard enough to be married to a Christ follower, as Talia can attest. It's very hard to be married to me. The situation is sometimes mutual. It is hard to be married to a Christian. It is really very hard to be married to a non-Christian. And so Paul's advice is don't make life harder for yourself. I'm reminded of a friend of Talia and I's, um, friends of ours, a lovely young couple, beautiful Christian people. They got married about the same time as we did. Um, they've had kids, a couple of kids. I don't, don't know. We're not super close to them, but we know them. We were close in our youth. And I heard a most tragic story a few years ago that he, for some reason, had just decided that he didn't believe anymore. He didn't want to be a Christian anymore. And that was the end of the marriage. Because she couldn't, she couldn't understand why this man that she'd married, who'd been so on fire for God, had been so in love with God, would suddenly say, actually, no, I don't believe any of it. It's all nonsense. And that destroyed their marriage. And so the urge this morning, encourage you this morning, be really sure. Don't Rush in. Don't make life harder for yourself. He must belong to the Lord. Really good advice. And Paul cannot help but give his own personal perspective because he says, in my judgment, she's happier if she stays as she is. Because the tragedy of losing a marriage partner would have to make a person think twice about going through all of that again. But Paul can also see that there must be benefits to the idea. People keep doing it after all. And freedom means choice. He simply urges the Corinthians and us to make wise choices. He says, I too have the spirit of God, he writes, urging his listeners to listen to his counsel and to the counsel of the spirit of God who lives in all of his people, the one who gives only good advice, the advocate who reminds us of everything that Jesus has taught and all that the Father God has in mind for his children. Are there any questions this morning before we conclude? For those visiting with us, I'd like to stop, see if there are any questions in case I've said something that upsets or confuses or you'd like to know more about. Ooh, good question. And I'll ignore that one. No. Uh, so Talia is asking, why is what Paul's advice so different to what Genesis chapter 2, where God says it's not good for a man to be alone? Yes, that's a good, good question. Um, that is a good question. Part of my answer will be that what Paul's been talking about, Paul lives in this time where he is convinced the world is going to end at any moment. He believes that Jesus will come back in his lifetime and he believes that fervently and he spends his life trying to drag as many people out of hell as he can so that when God comes back, he's ready. And so for Paul in that mindset of this has really got to get done and got to get done now, there's no point having children. The world's going to be over in two weeks. 
Paul has a different emphasis than perhaps we have with a view of perspective. I would also say that when God says it's not good for man to be alone um, in Genesis chapter 3, I don't think that means that marriage is automatic. I think it just means that people were built to be together. People were built to be social together. And so, yes, part of that becomes marriage, yes. Part of that is the getting of children, which is always good fun. But part of that is also, no, I mean, it's fun to play with your kids. You get to drink the water out of the toilet bowl, is what I'm saying. That didn't happen to me. But we're built for each other. We're built for social. We'll go back to John Wesley. John Wesley says there's no holiness without social holiness. What he meant by that was it's really easy to go off and live in a gum tree and be holy. You've got no one to bother you. Go off and live in the wilderness. You can be as holy as you like. But as soon as you have to sit next to the person in church who sings just half a tone out of key, ooh, it's hard to be holy, isn't it? As soon as you have to get up with the, live with the person who chucks their whiskers in the sink and doesn't wash them away, ooh, it's hard to be holy, isn't it? It's hard to be holy when you've got kids who will not put their shoes on no matter what you t- It's hard to be holy. And so there's no, so there's no holiness, he says, without social holiness being together as people. That comes some way to answering your question, have I obfuscated it sufficiently that you are satisfied? It's a complicated issue. And that's basically what I want to say about all of chapter 7 here. Paul is saying this is complicated stuff, people. And he's giving us his best advice from his years of experience, from his study of the scripture, from being a pastor for many years, from having the Holy Spirit living within him. He says, this is what I think is the best. And he says that again and again. In my judgment, I think, and that's a totally different way of looking at scripture to what perhaps we in the Western world want a set of rules. Do this, don't do that. And Paul's going, This is the best I've got. Let's work it out together. Are there any other questions? Yes, Lay. You don't agree about Paul? Amen. Yes. Yeah. Yep. 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 Thank you, Lay. So Lay is is asking questions about Paul, and again, I think following on from what Talia is saying, there is a real challenge here between 1 Corinthians chapter 7 and Genesis chapter 2. God made man and woman and joined them together. And, and yes, and Leah is saying she doesn't agree with Paul. And I've got to tell you, Leah, there are times when I don't agree with him either. Guess what? He's in the Bible and I'm not. But guess what? Even within that, we need to wrestle with these things and hold these things in tension and not just paper over the gaps. We need to understand why is Paul saying the things he's saying. I agree, yes, that in Genesis chapter 3, it seems to suggest that there'll be one man and one woman and they'll be joined together for life and that's it. But we know that that doesn't work out always. And we're no longer in the Garden of Eden. We live in a world of sin. And things aren't quite exactly how God wants them to be. We strive to get back to that ideal. But we're not there yet. 
And I think that's going to bring me to my conclusion. So thank you so much. Um, there's a story of a very organized, a lady at the end of her life. She's had a wonderful life, a successful life. She's done many great things and she's giving an interview to a journalist and the journalist, so that the journalist can write her obituary. And she says, you know, I've had a very organized life. My first husband was a very successful businessman. My second husband was a famous singer. My third husband was a great preacher. And my current husband, she says, is a funeral director. Very organized. And the journalist says, how is that organized? And she says, well, it's one for the money, two for the show, three to get ready, and four to go. Yes? Thank you. That's an old, terrible joke. She's had a very organized life. The thing about marriage that we need to always remember is that it's temporary. It's for this life only. And Jesus says in Mark chapter 12, he says, when the dead rise, they will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like the angels in heaven. And so whatever it is we say about marriage, it is temporary. It's for this life only. We look forward to a time beyond marriage, beyond marrying and giving in marriage, a time and place beyond our understanding, beyond our imagining, when the obsessions and concerns of this world, this life, will seem strangely quaint and absurd. Because more important than marriage, Paul says, is being in Christ Jesus. Christ is all, yes, all in all. My Christ is all in all. In the tradition of Talia and I's uh, church we grew up in, we grew up in the Salvation Army, there's an added clause in the marriage ceremony. Some folk here would have made a similar promise when they got married. And so when Talia and I got married, we said this, or had it read out, and it was part of our declaration. We do solemnly declare that although we enter into this marriage for reasons of personal happiness and fulfillment, we will do our utmost to ensure that our marriage status and relationship will deepen our commitment to God and enhance the effectiveness of our Christian service. We promise to make our home a place where all shall be aware of the abiding presence of God and where those under our influence shall be taught the truths of the gospel, encouraged to see Christ as Saviour and supported in the commitment of their lives to the service of God. We declare our intention to be to each other by the help of God, true Christian examples and through times of joy, difficulty or loss to encourage each other to grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. Christian marriage is not a Christian marriage unless both partners are married to Jesus, first and foremost. Unless the gospel has first place in the house, there's going to be all sorts of trouble. And so we remind ourselves of those words of Jesus. Jesus says, the time has come, he said. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. The gospel comes first. Marriage is an optional extra. 
The song I've chosen for us to reflect on this morning speaks of this great love, love divine, all loves excelling, the joy of heaven to earth come down, come and live in us, Lord God, and make us who we are meant to be.